Digital Gonzo, episode 103, dated Thursday the 4th of September 2012. The Sound of Gonzo, volume 2. Welcome to Digital Gonzo. I'm Alex Shaw with more music-based podcasting. Initially, I planned to release the Halo episode today, but just after battling through the game with my comrade Paul Shotton, I realised that I could not do it justice right now. My only prospective guest this week was David Merritt, and we would have done our best to be objective, but this was a huge title that had major influence on the gaming world, and it needs a group to discuss it on a grander scale. Simply put, I will never release or even record an episode of Digital Gonzo that I don't think is going to be of a high standard, and I felt unable to adequately reconcile my admiration for the new ground Bungie broke with the frustration I experienced during the second half of the game. So when I have a well-rounded team of five, we'll talk Halo. You'll need to play the game through to the end beforehand, and go in with your rosy-tinted visor absent. But enough about the most important console FPS ever made. We have had fantastic reactions already to the first Sound of Gonzo show. Anyone who knows me will know I like to jump into projects headfirst and never let them settle, lest I lose momentum. So my special guest this week is my very patient wife, repeated guest on Digital Gonzo, and new co-host of Dorkcast, Mrs. Sharon Shaw. Good evening. And what did you think of Volume 1? I enjoyed it greatly. And it made me start thinking what tracks I would put forward if I was going to be a guest on uh, Sounds of Gonzo. You were making notes on your iPhone, weren't you? Yes, I was. Same remit as last time, my guest and I have each brought along six pieces of music from films that I'm not currently planning on reviewing for Digital Gonzo. But considering the flurry of interest in The Dark Crystal and, by extension, Labyrinth on the Volume 1 forum thread, it's actually more of a likelihood that featuring a track on here will jumpstart a review. So the same task is ahead of us. We have to detail A, the film each piece belongs to, B, the name of the track, C, the composer, D, why does this have to be heard? So we'll start straight off with your first choice, Sharon. Okay, uh, my first choice is from the Ang Lee film, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. This was one of my favourite films for a very long time. I saw it in... 2001. 2000. Oh, hang on. Um, no, it was just before... It was just 2000, yeah. Sorry, it wasn't. Yeah. It was the very end of 2000. Um, and it was the first time that I had really seen anything properly based on Hong Kong cinema. Yeah. Um, there is something incredibly majestic about the film, and it completely and utterly swept me away. The... Mm backdrops the setting um the the very grand love story in fact the two love stories that the uh, the plot is twined around um the martial arts in it were unlike anything i had ever seen at the time it was dubbed martial art house it was yes. you know, it's got much much higher standards than than your average insanely cheap chop socky film that was put out. It's a massive industry over there, and they, you know, they put them out in, in the hundreds, and and so few of them really managed to stand out. But 
this one had Western backing and it was a big deal. It's only cost 17 million to make, which is peanuts compared to most blockbusters, but they've used every penny of that to make this seem incredibly lush and, and vast and epic. Anybody who hasn't seen it, and obviously the purpose of choosing this song is, um, or track, should I say, uh, is to try and encourage people to see it. Um, but it is, it's, it's beautiful. There really is no other word for it. Mm. It's the colours are so vibrant. The uh, the scenery is amazing, and a huge part of what makes this film for me is the music. Um, now the soundtrack was composed by Tan Dunn, uh, and it is primarily based around the uh, solo cello playing of Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> now I am a huge fan of cello music. I used to play the cello when I was um, younger. Uh, gave it up after about a year of playing it, but I uh, never got tired of listening to it played well. Um, and Yo-Yo Ma is an absolutely amazing performer. Um, and the introductory track to uh, this particular film, uh, the main theme, is so... I, I don't want to keep coming back to the word epic. but We have to watch that because during these shows we're going to be playing lots of epic music. We yeah, can't keep <laughs> we're saying, going to end up repeating it's ourselves. It's very epic. But it's, it will sweep you up in its epicness, it will. It's massive. It starts out with this beautiful uh, cello song, is really the only way I can describe it. This uh, Strings, if they're played well, mm-hmm. um, sound almost vocal to me. It's, it's like somebody's singing those notes and um, it's very elemental actually if you listen to it fans of Avatar basically are going to be able to if you listen in to, to this one that there's flourishes and identities that go with specific parts of the orchestra that's right and I think that's something that um, the, the whole eastern mystery of it the, the magical feel to it is emphasised by that you've got the uh, there's rolling drums that come in that sound like thunder and, and are very earthy, and then you've got um, a lot of percussion in it as well. Yeah, yeah the, you, you've got sort of little um, pipes and things that mm. come in that sort of give you that feel of rain, and it oh, it's it's just it really really grabs me. The whole soundtrack is outstanding, but this yeah. opening piece. Uh, really sums up the film for me. I think we're probably going to have to do a gonzo on this at some point, but this is just kind of a, a preliminary to get people watching it and get people talking about it so that it's, it gets people excited about it. So, uh, okay, I think that's pretty much sold it. This is just a really gargantuan song for us to start with. Just listen, there'll be a cello, couple of notes to begin with, and it sort of eases you in, and then there'll be a boom drum, and then suddenly you'll be hooked. So, enjoy. This is Tan Dunn's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, main theme. Thank you. 
that was absolutely splendid. For folks who are wondering what actually goes on in the film, it's about a swordmaster who tries to retire and return his sword to a friend of his. The sword is then stolen by a ninja, and the love of the swordmaster's life tries to get the sword back. All merry hell breaks loose. It's a right palaver. And the film is concerned with hidden talents and the secrets that people keep. It's wonderful. Okay, so the next one, going in a completely different direction, and actually not entirely different, because there's a lot of Eastern influence on this. Um, it's one of the most influential soundtracks of the 80s, and it's still being felt today in games like Mass Effect and Deus Ex, you know, Human Revolution, Blade Runner by Vangelis. Now, fans of Blade Runner will be extremely happy that I'm including this, Vangelis was very famous for producing the soundtrack to Chariots of Fire, which was kind of iconic 80s Olympian standard music, the kind that you put usually over montages of people achieving greatness. But this is a film about a dystopian future with rain-swept streets and kind of an industrialised, almost like 1930s Shanghai, not entirely dissimilar, actually, to The Legend of Korra, for fans of that. It was a miserable experience making it. Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford pushed each other to the very limits and when it initially came out it was not received well it took years for this one to gain recognition and the soundtrack itself wasn't released in you know an actual proper soundtrack for nearly 10 years it took the director's cut of Blade Runner to actually uh, launch that there were various bootlegs going around the place including the Esper edition and uh, then it was re-released as a three-disc in 2007 when the 25th anniversary of Blade Runner came out with the final cut. Um, what I'm going to play right now is the prologue and main titles. So for folks who haven't seen the film, picture a vast futuristic city, just pinpricks of light everywhere. It had incredible model work that made everything seem tangible, like everything was sparkling off in the distance. So this was one of the first films to actually realistically convey flying cars, and you actually were sold this. It's because everything's so serious as well. And even though it's a dystopia, it's not like everything's all gone to hell. There's still a sense of majesty about this. It's just that there's coldness in there as well, and there's this... It's got the light of discovery about the film itself, in that they've pushed robotic technology to the point where the robots can think often deeper than the humans can. I would certainly say that this is one of the most influential soundscapes of the sci-fi genre. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't dated in the way that something like uh, The Terminator, the original one, which came out two years later, uh, has managed. It, it's still breathtaking, really. It's synth as it should be. I was about to say, if you're not going to let something date terribly, you have to be extremely careful with your synth. Mm. Manhunter is a classic example of synth plonking the film squarely yeah. in the 80s and not letting it out. And actually, it's interesting that you say soundscape. It does have a feeling of ambience, like you're actually listening to the city itself rather than it being a straight-out um, melody. I love how it starts out, just those few notes seems to just repeat throughout the course of the track... But it starts out almost like an idea that then just expands and expands and says, look, this is what happens when we take that idea and make it writ large across the cityscape. It's also extremely uh, influential on a couple of other tracks we've got coming up later on. So it's kind of a Blade Runner themed episode, actually. I'm going to let it speak for itself now. OK, so take it away, Vangelis.
Okay, so the next one is not the least bit Blade Runnery. Take it away, Sharon. Right, this next track uh, is from the film uh, The Piano from 1993. Um, the track I've chosen is called The Heart Asks Pleasure First, which is... I believe it's sort of acknowledged as being the main theme of the film. The mm. uh, score was by Michael Nyman, um, and it's it's more or less entirely piano. There's some orchestral arrangement behind it, um, but a lot of the music in the film came directly from uh, Holly Hunter, who's the um, the main actress in the film, uh, playing the piano pieces. The version of uh, The Heart Asks Pleasure First that I've gone for is the one right at the end of the uh, the CD soundtrack. Um, it wasn't on the original American release, although it was on the British one. Um, and it's sort of an extended version. There is another version about the middle of the um, the soundtrack, which is, I think that's the one that was actually played in the film. But I would say that it's too incomplete for me to have chosen that one. It, it stops very abruptly, um, and if you've seen the film, then you'll understand why. Um, but the uh, the version that they have at the end of the soundtrack plays the uh, the, the song, I suppose, for, for want of a better term, in, in its entirety. And uh, there's some orchestral backing to it as well that really amplifies it and, and lifts it above just being regular piano. When I did my episode of Desert Island Gonzo, um, my artist of choice, my um, music artist of choice was Tori Amos. And part of the reason for that is I absolutely adore well-played piano music. Tim Minchin as well. Yes, yes, Tim Minchin too. Right. I, I believe that in this world everybody is entitled to the means to support themselves and the ability to do something to express themselves. And the way people who can play the piano really, really well express themselves through their music is something that I envy very, very greatly. Um, I, it's possibly more information than is strictly necessary for the purposes of a music review podcast, but I am generally quite an even-tempered person. I tend to respond to things uh, rationally and, and, you know, how I think... Uh, would be an appropriate response. Um, I don't tend to let my emotions do my thinking for me. Um, the plus side of this is that I'm very good at coping with crisis and, and um, you know, I, I can deal with quite a lot of things that, that the world may choose to throw at me and, and remain relatively calm. The negative side of this is I can be quite emotionally closed off and sometimes there are um, little pockets of emotion that I have not processed that I just stumble across from time to time and it is far more helpful for me to be able to find things that unlock those pockets when I'm in a position to actually let it go rather than for it to suddenly creep up on me when I'm driving to work or you know in the middle of doing something incredibly important that requires a lot of focus um, and it, it does happen to me sometimes that I'll just be walking along and it's like someone's just reached up grabbed hold of my throat and pulled me down on the floor and all of a sudden my, my mood just drops 
and and I, I don't know what it is that's that's caused that and it's it's coming across one of these little emotional bubbles something that allows me to let that out with a measure of control a safety valve a safety valve I consider to be a very very positive thing and music like this that I don't know how to describe it it's it's up and down it's it is very melancholy um, but it's also very passionate as well is, yeah. you can feel the heaviness in the keys it's not just like tinkling they're just oh. absolutely it's extremely powerful and, and when you watch the film and you see Holly Hunter playing the piano as well she throws herself into this the the movement of, of getting that music out there and, and her character Ada is very much like that she keeps her emotions closed up you know she always wears black which I know is she's I think she's a widow isn't she she lost her um her husband that plays into young. the narrative of the film which um, by the way everyone should see yeah it's it's heavy drama but it's it's very very well played yeah she's she's a very passionate woman who is very much imprisoned by her time um this by was Jane Campion the yes, New Zealand Jane director who director. kind of went nowhere after this and Anna Packin got an Oscar for her child performance and then grew up to be a really fairly terrible adult performer. Mm. I actually think, I was thinking about this earlier, and I think a lot of what appeals to me about the piano, it's similar themes to what appeals to me about Kill Bill. It's mm. a different woman, it's a different time, but it's a similar approach of she's had her world decided for her by a man or the men around her who've put her in a position that she is not happy with. And they're both about how those women respond to it and, and the ways in which they um, express their displeasure um, and dissatisfaction with, with where they've been placed. And in obviously the bride's case, it's in lopping off lots of people's arms and legs. Um, and in Ada's case, it, it comes through in her music. Um, uh, listen to the song. The link, by the way, between the piano and Kill Bill is that Harvey Keitel, who's in the piano, was in the McGraw-niverse, the very same universe that Kill Bill takes place in, in From Dust Till Dawn. Michael Nyman's music, by the way, was instrumental in bringing film scores into the light as exemplary of what modern-day classical music has manifested itself as. That's what film scores are. It's, you know, look to the, your Nyman's, your John Williams's for who the modern day version of the classics. It sounds churlish to compare them to Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, but... It has that timeless quality yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah.
Wonderful. Okay, so for the next one, we're going to lighten the tone a little bit, which I had to do with quite a lot of yours because uh, there was a lot of very heavy, often very dour stuff. So uh, I had to sort of offset it with something a little bit more fun, a little bit more funky, a little bit more sexy, a little bit more upbeat, and in this case, a lot more swashbuckling. So um, before we start this, I'm going to play a bit of music first, which this is clearly based on. Uh, and folks who know this film will immediately go, oh, that's what he's done. So have a listen to this. That was Schumann's Symphony Number no. 3. And it's exactly the same as James Horner's score for Willow. Now, Willow is a film from 1988, which, if anyone's been watching Life's Too Short, the awesome comedy from Ricky Gervais with the wonderful, funny, talented Mr. Warwick Davis, you'll know that they constantly refer back to this Warwick's biggest screen presence, which um, almost made back all of its budget, maybe, these days, with video DVD sales. Yeah, not quite. Um... This was back in the uh, late 80s where they weren't quite sure what to do with fantasy. And you're going to get that quite a lot in uh, uh, The Sound of Gonzo. The first tentative steps into fantasy before they finally came along with Lord of the Rings and said, this is how it's done. This is kind of a George Lucas attempt at doing The Hobbit with a bit of Lord of the Rings thrown in there as well. It should have been rubbish. By all accounts, if you actually look at it on paper, it should have been rubbish. But there is a charm to the way that... Warwick Davis plays his Nelwyn Hobbit wannabe wizard and the way that they throw Val Kilmer back when he was thin back when he was handsome uh, as Mad Martigan the your basic hand solo swordsman type uh, it's, it's got a lot of Star Wars in there it's directed by Ron Howard who was Richie in Happy Days and of course the narrator in Arrested Development if for some reason you haven't had the pleasure of this unsung 80s classic uh, I recommend you uh, find it and track it down on DVD and check it out. It's got a soundtrack by James Horner, who went on to do Titanic and Avatar, and had already worked on Aliens at this point. Actually, fans of James Cameron's Avatar will actually notice quite a lot of his use of harsh panpipes in there as well to uh, to signify the will of evil. Uh, but this is the swashbuckling Willows theme. Now, it's called Willows theme, but actually, if you watch the film, it plays whenever Mad Mardigan is kicking ass. And uh, it's it's a kind of a you know sword fighty one, a predecessor of the Jack Sparrow. He's a pirate type theme. He looks a bit like Jack Sparrow. He's got long hair. He's and got some dreadlocks. Braids down braids. the side. He right. wears weird looking clothes that get very raggedy and covered in dresses by the end of it. Mm. And he's a vagabond. So actually, yeah, this is really Mad Martigan's theme, but it's called Willow's theme, and it's James Horner at his bombastic best. So I believe this is the one that plays either at the point where Mad Martigan is dressed as a... Oh, no, actually, that's that's a different... No, that, that, da, that's the card word. Mm-hmm. This is when he um, gets out of the tent after... I love you, Sorsha. And they're surrounded by snow and they jump on the shield. Yeah. And... Just so you folks can get an idea in your head, this is just after Mad Mardigan's had a love spell put on him by evil little brownies and has fallen in love with the wicked queen sorceress's daughter 
and gotten them into something of a sticky situation. He then has to fight his way past a whole bunch of guards now. Willow, the Nelwyn Hobbit, has never seen Mad Mardigan fight before, but as it turns out, he's actually really good at it. He may in fact be, as he claims, the greatest swordsman that's ever lived.
There's quite a lot of components in that one, actually. There's the uh, it sort of slows down after the um, you know initial bursts of action, and it sort of gives you a little bit of a kind of a romantic, kind of chivalrous, sort of knightly theme. And at the very end, there's that kind of call, which says magic things are happening. It's it's a lovely film, it really is, and especially if you've got like eight to ten year old kids, they might love it. It's a great sort of, uh, especially if the Hobbit, yeah, in these few months before the Hobbit comes out on Blu-ray, it's a great sort of introduction to that kind of fantasy universe. Okay, next one is yours, and let's bring it right down with something thoroughly depressing. <laughs> My next choice is a funeral dirge. <laughs> it's not quite. A no, it's actually really really good. It, it's not far off. Um, it's it's probably not the most depressing song from this soundtrack that I could have picked. I'm sure there are a couple of others that are... There are a lot more than, oh, we are the children of the night. Yeah. No one knows our pain. Um, in, in case you haven't guessed, uh, this one is uh, my pick from the soundtrack for Interview with the Vampire. Um, now, the, uh, the soundtrack was largely composed by Elliot Goldenthal. When I was, I suppose, a, a teenager... This would have come out when you were 16. Appropriate, yeah. Well, the, the point at which I got the soundtrack and, and really got into it, would I would have been about 17, 18. Kind of like, yeah. Um, I don't know that I can legitimately say I was a goth. Diet goth? Diet goth, maybe, yeah. Goth um, light. I, I was heavily into... Bad poetry, lace. wearing black, black lace. with occasional lace. Yes, um, my my interest was strong, but my um, culture embracing lacked commitment. <laughs> <laughs> However, you only applied your eye makeup tastefully. Yes, you didn't yes, paint your eyes shut, and as a result, I am still no good with eyeliner. Lightweight. But Interview with a Vampire was a, a CD that I took to university with me and listened to over and over and over and over again. Um, it, it was sort of my courting soundtrack of choice, for want of a better term. Um, but there's one track right in the middle of it that suddenly goes... Inopportune moment and completely break up whatever it was I was trying to achieve. So you're about to kiss and then suddenly, da, 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 da. yeah, that, that was about the size of it. And that happened more than once. You'd think I'd have learned. Did you have to dive across the room and turn off the CD? Many times. Skip. Many times. Um, however, if it was yeah, iTunes, you could just untick the know, box. I could just say, don't play that track. That would have been fine. But you know, this was this was pre-digital rearrangement. You could have made yourself music. a mixtape. I could have. I could have. Yes, but um, hey, I I didn't. Um, Lazy. I know. See? Lacking commitment. <laughs> um, but the, the track I've chosen is not that one. Um, Thank Christ. <laughs> strange memories, though, that would bring back. Um, but it is uh, the first track on the soundtrack, mm. which is uh, a choral arrangement called Libera May. Hmm. It's kind of a... It, it, is, it is a funeral dirge. It is, it's, it's a church choir, and it's... I mean, it's far more doom-laden and threatening than any church would actually ever play unless they were trying to scare people. Well, I think that's that's kind of what appeals to me about it. There is something very uh, cathedral-like mm. about the, the tone of it, um, and obviously the, the choir does give it that sort of churchy feel, but 
in combination with the tone of the, the film and the book, which I read later, it does always make me think of um, religious rejection, both rejecting religion and being rejected by it. Um, it, it makes me think of the um, the opposing ideas of, of terrible, terrible things happening in churches and um, churches refusing to have anything to do with people who are, um, you know, to all intent and purposes, perfectly good. They just aren't happy with them because they don't follow the same faith or I, I don't quite know how to sum it up but the the film has a lot of um sort of philosophical musings on the nature of good and evil um and you know is it is it what you do that makes you evil is it who you are if you are essentially an evil being but you choose to apply a moral code to what you do does that then make you good these are things that they they back back and forth quite a lot throughout the film and this song makes me think of that that sort of overarching theme it's kind of there's when after the the initial churchy bit goes by there's a sort of the sweeping which is kind of a dark gone with the wind feel to it yeah that it starts off on a you know a rich plantation manor house type scenario with a young nobleman and uh, played by Brad Pitt incredibly boringly this whole film he is morose and self-pitying and fortunately Tom Cruise is sparky and funny and full of charisma as he's supposed to be he did do a very good job. There yeah. were lots of people when the film first came out were horrified by the notion that Brad, uh, that uh, Tom Cruise was going to play Lestat. Um, but there was, was so much worse coming. There was, there was. Um, but this was back when vampires didn't sparkle. It was um, only in the actual terms of blood their was shown on the screen. Yes, blood was shown, and um, there's points at which they get quite hideous. Um, they have no qualms whatsoever about ravishing the relevant heroines there are several heroines in this film that get completely ravished and it's it's entirely appropriate <laughs> um, oh and Kirsten Dunst excellent first role from her best performance of her career hmm. in my opinion hmm. yeah actually I wouldn't I, I don't think she's ever outdone yeah. the way she pulled off that role she did really really well but she's done better than Anna Packin in later life by and large yes this is only two years after Elliot Goldenthal did the score to Alien 3, which has similar religious overtones to it. Like a year before he did the score to Heat, which is completely different and all about sort of the, the sounds of a city. Clearly he had a lot of this to work out of his system at the time. So this is Liberame by Elliot Goldenthal from Interview with the Vampire.
Okay, let's warm it up with another Brad Pitt film, and not a very good Brad Pitt film. This is Meet Joe Black. Now, in the midst of this two-and-a-half-hour odyssey is actually quite a good film. It's directed by Martin Brest. Um, if you edited it down to maybe an hour and 45 minutes, just chop an hour of all of this superfluous garbage out, there's quite a nice touching romance here. The idea is that Claire Forlani, where did she go? Because she was gorgeous back in the late 90s and then... I'm sure she still is. Yeah, I'm sure she still is, but uh, isn't in films much anymore. Falls in, well, meets a, a very nice chap. They hit it off. And then she goes away. Nice chap gets hit by a car and then turns up again. And her dad is Anthony Hopkins. And nice chap tells Anthony Hopkins, I'm death. I've come for you. And Anthony Hopkins says, oh, please, not now. And he goes, oh, I'll hang around for a few days. And Anthony Hopkins says, yes, you can get to know my daughter. I think that's roughly what happens in it. Claire Forlani's character gets to know death. The Grim Reaper himself embodied in Pretty Brad Pitt. That's the plot of Mort, more or less, the Terry Pratchett story. Hmm. Well, this was a remake of a film, a French film called Death Takes a Holiday, which I'm assuming Terry Pratchett borrowed from. Well, uh, either way, the film's as daft as onions, but it's got a lovely score by Thomas Newman. Uh, he of the Shawshank Redemption and uh, Finding Nemo. He has this sort of wonderful kind of piano and... Uh, and flute arrangement going on and this one is Whisper of a Thrill and you'll probably have heard this repeatedly since then uh, since the film was released in like 1998, early 99 uh, in commercials and things because it's so powerful and actually transcends the fairly humdrum film it started in so this is Whisper of a Thrill from Meet Joe Black and it takes place during a scene when uh, Death is romancing the lovely Claire Forlani and there's a kind of a, a sensuous thing going on uh, between them. And it's it, it's really kind of romantic and, and Thomas Newman, who's made some incredible music in the film industry, knows how to keep a light touch at this point. But it's got kind of a, a floating mysticism to it as well. Like, you know, they're actually, they're, they're, they're just touching... Uh, another plane at this point because ultimately she's messing with an elemental spirit something that's immense and bigger than all of us
Okay, checking on our facts here, the film Death Takes a Holiday was from 1934, so it's very conceivable that Terry Pratchett was inspired by this in some way. The actual running time of the film is 181 minutes, which is just over three hours. And apparently there was a uh, two hours, ten minute cut uh, made for the airlines and various other places that needed to get it in before people died of starvation. And... um, Martin Brest, the director, was so incensed that they would cut so much unimportant stuff out of his enormous, bloated picture that he made them change the name of the director to Alan Smithy. Okay, Sharon, uh, give us something much more Western. My next choice is uh, from a film which I've already mentioned. Um, And it's one which, again, anybody who, who... knows me and has heard some of the reviews I've done before will know I am extremely fond of Uh, it's from Kill Bill Volume 2 the track that I've chosen and there's a lot of music that I really really love in Kill Bill both volumes of Hmm. and I would recommend that anybody who's interested in my uh, overall opinions of the film check out either my uh, Desert Island Gonzo episode where I discussed it briefly Hmm. and uh, an old and a Digital Cowboys episode. It's not available? Nope. Arse. Yeah. You guys can't listen to it because it's not available. I will someday do the Tarantino films, at which point I will re-release it because listening back to it, it has all of the things that are present in Gonzo. We've done our really deep, deep, deep research. It's got all of the musical stuff in it and then the deconstruction. I'm very, very proud of this. This was uh, Digital Cowboys Movie Club. There were only ever three episodes and we promised to terminate the two and that's coming, folks. But uh, yeah, we we talked forever on this one and um, yeah, that will come back. We did, yes. Um, But uh, one of the things that we only touched on was the way uh, the, the films juxtapose Eastern and Western warriors. And the the, uh, track that I've chosen um, is one which, for me, is a great example of how Tarantino has an ability to use music to direct your thoughts and your emotions to exactly where he wants it to be. Um, And the the track that I've chosen is called... Is it it pronounced La Reina? La Arena. La Arena. Uh, Usually he does it with, rather than actually asking someone to compose a score, he finds a piece of music in his own collection that is exactly right tonally for the the part of the film he's doing. Mm. And he puts that in there and says, this is where I want you to go. Um, This one is by Ennio Morricone, which um, obviously he is very... Famous for the spaghetti westerns. Yeah, yeah. His his music is... You listen to uh, Morricone's music and... That's what you're thinking is is what the Western image. Sun drenched Clint Eastwood. Dusty ranches and um, gunslingers, mm. and and that's that's what you're thinking of. And obviously, um, that's something that um, that Tarantino was was using throughout the whole of, of Kill Bill Volume Two. Since Volume Two is a Western. Absolutely. Um, interestingly enough, just a small aside. Uh, I have a CD of Ennio Morricone music played by Yo-Yo Ma, mm. who mm. also did the Crouching Tiger soundtrack, which is Eastern Eastern um, toned. I think we could probably slip one of them in at some point to a uh, 
Sound of Gonzo episode mm-hmm. in the future. Very likely. But this this particular track plays over the scene where B has been captured. Buried alive in a coffin. She's been captured and buried alive in a coffin. And the scene preceding it shows her learning various um, martial arts skills from her... Cruel instructor, Pai Mei. Yes. That takes the... Uh, the tone of the film back to the Eastern-influenced style. Hates Americans, he despises Caucasians and, and has, has nothing but contempt, contempt for, for women. But the music here really drags you back into the Western um, frame of mind. This is a moment when B has had everything stripped away from her. And as the music swells and particularly as the drums kick in and the trumpet kicks in and it just becomes this triumphant roll of the whole thing just swells into this moment of determination and of of somebody who is seizing control of their situation and really giving it you know i i have the power to get myself out of this and that's exactly what i'm going to do um, and that's the the core of why I love these films and this track just sums that up for me perfectly.
Okay, let's see this back up again because uh, James Batchelor's choice last week of uh, $160 million Chinese man started reminding me of how incredible David Holmes can be when in collaboration with Steven Soderbergh. And something from the Out of Sight soundtrack, which James is not familiar with, but I am very familiar with, had to be played in this episode. And I've gone for the tub scene. Just to give you guys a mental picture on this, if you haven't seen Out of Sight, George Clooney is a suave bank robber who is smarter than most of his kind and usually pretty lucky, gets caught one too many times and ends up for a very long stretch in prison. He breaks out only to walk straight into... Uh, U.S. Marshal, played by Jennifer Lopez, in a career high, I might add. Um, They both get bundled into the trunk of his friend Buddy, the getaway driver, and are stuck talking to each other for ten minutes while she works out how she can possibly get out of there and arrest both of them. Long story short, Jack Foley, played by Clooney, gets away, and then he and Karen Sisko, the marshal, spend the rest of the movie thinking about each other while she chases him. And this takes place during a scene where she breaks into his apartment with a gun and goes to try to apprehend him, finds out that he's in the tub. I don't think I can really accurately describe how incredibly sexy this scene is, but he wakes up and beckons her into the tub with him. And I think most teenage boys, and frankly most teenage girls, and indeed I don't think we should really restrict this to teenage at this point, we're going, ha the entire time. And yeah, she gets in the tub with him right there, and at the very end, she wakes up, and it was her dream, and she's in hospital because she's hit her head in a car crash. Just listen to this, think about that scene, and go by out of sight, because it is one of the best genre-straddling comedy-drama thrillers out there. And it was the film that first made people take notice of Steven Soderbergh after his initial foray with Sex, Lies and Videotape. He sort of, there was a civil wilderness years of movies like Schizopolis and uh, the Kafka biopic that no one really watched. Out of sight, and this is the music of David Holmes for the tub scene.
one of the greatest on-screen cinematic couples I've ever seen. And it has a love scene in there that's essentially inspired by Don't Look Now, which is, a, a, again, a phenomenal, staggering film. It's just, there's this chemistry and this electricity between them, and they're just they're at the top of their game. And I kind of wish that George Clooney did films like this still. I wish Jennifer Lopez did films like this. Yeah, good point. Okay, so the next one... Now, this is one of the ones that actually I did my research and uh, the soundtrack was not necessarily inspired by Blade Runner. Definitely, though, inspired by 2001. This is actually a soundtrack that initially uh, was ridiculously difficult to get hold of. There were various legal issues that prevented it from being released up to about a year after the film came out. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the soundtrack for uh, the Danny Boyle film Sunshine. This is, again, another one of my favourite films ever. Um, the soundtrack for this is absolutely transcendent. It's, it's a selection of music that takes you out of yourself and dumps you squarely somewhere in the middle of the cosmos um, to enjoy looking at the stars and, and the, the cold blackness of space and the, uh, the few pinpoints of light that make you feel that there's something out there that's that's alive and that's you know something that you can interact with um the track that i chose from this one is not the iconic adagio in d minor it's usually just referred to as the sunshine theme yeah um which has been used for many many other trailers and adverts and Things that, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to put it on the sound of Gonzo at some point because it is absolutely indeed. incredible. It's very well known and it's an absolutely astounding piece of music. But again, like a lot of my other selections, it's quite melancholy. And the one I chose in the end was from earlier in the film. It's Kappa's Last Transmission Home. Um, it's by Underworld. Hmm. The uh, score to the film was uh, jointly done by Underworld and John Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the Underworld tracks. And this plays over a scene where uh, Kappa, played by Killian Murphy, Who is... Who you've expressed an interest in before. Yeah, I like him. At this point in the film, um, the Icarus II spacecraft is about to pass out of range of being able to send messages back home to Earth. Uh, the central character, Kappa, is recording um, a, a message to send back home to his parents mm. or his, his family, I think his sister, um, for her as well. Um, the music itself sounds to me like digital communication. Data transfer. It's Yeah, it's very electronic in tone. Um There's a warmth and a light to it, though. It's not just cold, clear. That's right, yeah. And by comparison to a lot of the music later on, which really does give you that feel of of the vastness of space, this is very much more about the the connection that he has with his family back home. That because of mankind's brilliance, it's kind of a piece of music that very rarely for most, um, you know, future disaster type films says everything's going to be all right because we're clever. Mm. Well, not even necessarily that everything's going to be all right, but that there will be something that we leave behind. Yeah. These words, these thoughts, these feelings, we can encapsulate these in the, the you know, the, the data that we now have access to. Mm. Even if we're 
not leaving behind our souls, even if we go nowhere after this. You know, if, if everything else falls apart, we leave behind a legacy, which is these ideas and the, the feelings that we have between us. And Because for those who haven't seen the film, that mankind and every other life form in our solar system is in danger because the sun is about to go out mm. and they're trying to reignite it in the film. And this is they're literally the last hope for all living organisms. It's As I said before, it's the thinking man's Armageddon. Indeed. It reprises at the very end of the film. It sort of it ties it. It bookends the the whole point because the the message that was sent by Kappa gets received at the very end. If there was a sound that summed up light and intelligence, it's this, and it starts at the beginning and ends at the end. So this is Kappa's last transmission home by Underworld. Okay, this is one of those ones that was absolutely inspired by Blade Runner. In fact, if you watch the film, it actually starts with a... and and a cityscape in exactly the same way. Uh, It's 1988's Akira. Uh, Now, this was based on a uh, a Japanese manga. uh, I call it a comic book, but it can't really describe the phone directory that those things become. Um... I'm not sure there are any people out there who haven't seen it, but I don't want to take it for granted. This is one of the formative anime films. This was one of the ones that made them legitimate to the West as well. It's one of the ones where they first started thinking, right, let's start doing some actual translations of this, and manga actually really hit over here. It wasn't even originally released by Manga Entertainment, which is their own group. How to describe Akira? 
uh, is it 2019 Neo Tokyo is about to explode, I believe is the tagline in the West. Similar to Blade Runner, future dystopia, there's a lot of civil unrest, biker gangs are going insane, there's rioting in the streets, the poor are trampled on by the rich. I mean, it's themes that actually turn up in a, in a lot of sci-fi, and especially that they're in a lot of sci-fi novels throughout the 20th century. And this first bit of music is Kaneda's theme. Now, Kaneda is just an average Tokyo teenage guy who drives an incredibly awesome red bike. Unlike Blade Runner, where it's all about synth, there's a tribal kind of percussive and, and choral uh, element to this, where it sounds like the Japanese cultural heritage of music brought forwards into the future. And it's it, there's this sort of throbbing, humming kind of thing through it. It just propels you forward. And it's fascinating to watch these first couple of uh, uh, minutes unfold in the film. Definitely thinking of doing a Gonzo about this at some point, but I just wanted to highlight this one piece of music, which is absolutely iconic. And listen during the later vocal moments, because the chorus are chanting, Canada, Tetsu who are the two main characters of the film. But yeah, this is when um, we first saw the scope that could be managed by visionary Japanese directors working in the medium of animation. There have been plenty before this, but this is the first time that the West sat up and said, OK, what you got? So this is Kaneda's theme. Picture a future Tokyo cityscape zooming past in a haze while sat upon a turbocharged Japanese superbike.
My final pick is from the film L.A. Story, uh, starring Steve Martin, uh, which came out in 1991. It's ostensibly a romantic comedy, and one of the reasons that I've chosen this particular track, which is Exile by Enya, is because the tone of this music seems to me to be completely at odds with the rest of the, the, film, rest yeah. of the film. It's very light-hearted. The um, film it is. The film, yes. There's a lot of uh, sort of back-and-forth dialogue, which Steve banter, Martin... Yeah. Banter, thank you, yes, which Steve Martin does incredibly well sometimes. With his then-wife, Victoria Tennant, who was also his co-star in All of Me, which is also fantastic. Indeed. The story follows uh, Steve Martin's character... Um, Harris K. Telemacher. Harris, yes. Um, as he attempts to woo uh, a lady called Sarah... Oh overcoming various obstacles including his attraction to a very young Sarah Jessica, Sarah Jessica Parker. Parker looking less like a foot than she does later on indeed and uh, Sarah's ex-husband played by Richard E Grant mm. but the that's Sarah Victoria Tennant not Sarah Sarah Jessica Parker the, yes sorry um, the essence of this this part of the film is that they've she's trying to leave um, and earlier in the film Harris has, has said to Sarah that um, when she gets on the plane to go home, back to England, um, he will call up storms and reverse the polarity of the Earth to try and stop her plane from taking off. Which is significant because he's a weatherman. He's a weatherman, yes. Meteorologist. Should have mentioned that. Um, and this is the point of the film where she has gone and got on the plane and that's exactly, well, so that's exactly what happens. A storm springs up so that her plane cannot take off. And this is the music that plays over it. Um, and significantly, LA has been nothing but the whole point is that Harris's job is effect effectively useless. He's a guy who gets up in the morning and says, 72, 72, sun, sun, sun. It's always the same. The weather in LA is always the same Constantly. and it will always be the same. Absolutely. The weather will change your life twice. He is advised by a street sign who these days would have the voice of GLaDOS um, that the weather will change his life twice. And the one time when he says it's going to be sunny and it's not, he gets fired. And then this is the second time when the weather suddenly, very unseasonably, becomes incredibly thunderous and stormy. And it, L.A. itself becomes a, like a spiritual body in this film. The whole it, it gently pokes fun at and at the same time celebrates L.A. lifestyle. So it points out how ridiculous and ludicrous it is and how um, almost like living in a dream world everyone who, who exists there is. But at the same time, it's so fond and it's kind of like watching it. You want to be part of that dream even if you would end up deluded and... Harris says something very significant halfway through when he's talking to Sarah, which is ordinarily I don't like to be around interesting people because it means I have to be interesting. What I mean is when I'm around you, I find myself showing off, which is the idiot's version of being interesting, which is about the closest you can get to me encapsulated into a single sentence. And L.A. itself, as a spiritual body, seems to want Harris and Sarah to get together. So at this very end point, a storm comes in. And it prevents Sarah from leaving. It's a wonderful moment. Now, Enya is incredibly emblematic of the 80s. And this was made at the tail end of that, obviously. So 1991, we're still getting the aftershock of it. And there's a lot of outfits in there which are resplendent of the 80s. And if you put Enya on for most people, they'd be like, oh, she's so dated. 
but this is a wonderfully powerful song nonetheless. I have a great love of Celtic style music and the lyrics to this song, you can't really hear them brilliantly well, um, but it's it's talking about, you know, winter and, and wind and rain and it, it fits with what's happening. I don't think I've ever heard another human being talking about this film just apropos of nothing, so this is another one that I'm going to really pitch to people. I think, given enough interest, I would probably do a podcast on it as well, because there is a sort of a whimsical, mystical quality to this film. To me, it's Steve Martin's... uh, It's either his best or his second best film, because I also really love and value Parenthood because of everything that it stands for, especially now. Interestingly enough... Parenthood's a film that is incredibly relevant to you when you're a kid, growing up, and then a teenager, and then when you're in your 20s, you're still sort of trying to deal with your parents, and then when you actually become a parent, it suddenly takes on whole new meanings, and then becomes more and more relevant as the years go on, so honestly, cannot recommend Parenthood enough. LA story, it feels like Steve and the character of Harris that he's playing, who seems pretty close to Steve Martin in real life, is actually trying to say something with this film. It was written by Steve Martin, which is significant. And it's dryly funny in a way that... I don't know, it's, it, it appeals to my oddball sense of humour. And in, actually, ultimately, when I watched this film, I was like 11 or 12 years old, so it's probably helped shape my sense of humour. It's by no means as cruel as I can get, but um, dryly abstract, would that be a good way of putting it? Yeah. One of the things I really love about this piece of music is uh, there's a moment in the middle um, when the pipes kick in. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I was saying before about those little bubbles of emotion that, that need to be released, that's one of the moments that pierces those for me. Yeah. It's very Japanese in, 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 in tone, which, again, fits in with the 80s where they were obsessed with Japan. So, yeah, if you folks are able to, uh, uh, go outside and listen to this in the middle of a storm. And then if you can possibly get the clouds to part and actually the rain to alleviate around about the end, then that would also be good. This is Exile by Enya.
Fantastic stuff. That this is an interesting soundtrack. It's never actually been released on CD, but it mixes equal parts Enya and Django Reinhardt. So if you like either or both or neither of those, then you really need to listen to. I, I don't know. You can't even listen to, you can't even find the soundtrack. But for folks who see the film and are interested, I can give you a track listing on the forum so you can find them on YouTube and have a listen. Before we go, I'd like to thank my guest Sharon Shaw for coming on at such short notice and for her truly impeccable taste in movie scores. Sharon, thank you and please do plug your show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, my show, uh, it's not just my show of course, I share it with uh, Leah Haydu and Matt Ramsey and it is Dorkcast. And we have two episodes out so far and we'll shortly be working on a third. It's a what have you been doing style podcast um, instead of just the usual what have you been playing we also have what have you been reading and what have you been watching so it's a little bit more of a broad spectrum and uh, yeah seems to be doing quite well so far uh, we're very nice come and listen to us and send us listener mail it was wonderful to actually hang out with Matt and Leah came over for Eurogame when we got to hang out with them and they're just it's it was odd being in the same room because it was like we were podcasting only uh, it, we just sort of lapsed into the same kind of personas, which just happened to be who we really who are. we really are. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It was it was great fun, and uh, yeah, I, I hope Leah gets to come back to the UK soon because uh, that was something that I think all of us enjoyed. Definitely. So yeah, that's Dorkcast, and also check out Matt Ramsey's Dork Tunes, which is almost exactly the same format we're doing here, only it's video game music, with him and his co-host Pete. So I'm going to leave you with my last song, which is Leave No Man Behind, from the soundtrack to the 2001 movie Black Hawk Down, composed by Hans Zimmer. It's almost impossible for us to do a Sound of Gonzo without including something by Hans Zimmer or one of his protégés. Black Hawk Down is kind of different. It's more a film that looks at the intensity of a situation when men are thrown in next to each other up against exceptionally hostile forces and you can only rely on the men beside you because you're cut off from the rest of the world. So there's this sadness to this song but there's a sort of a sense of brotherhood in there as well it, and there's obviously a lot of Gaelic influence in this one and it gives it a, a sort of eternal feel like you know dating back millennia through endless conflict the one thing in common being the men pushing themselves and each other through it to emerge on the other side diminished in number next week we start the first of three Firefly podcasts with special guests Leah Haydu and Matt Ramsey of Dorkcast. Sharon will also be on those. In fact, it's pretty much Dorkcast with me as a guest and the focus topic being Firefly. The next volume of The Sound of Gonzo will be a James Bond 007 special featuring James Batchelor and Gary Blower and launching the same week as Skyfall hits our cinemas. And new listeners, if you haven't heard them already and you're getting excited for James Bond, go back and listen to the three Bond specials that we recorded last year. Those are fantastic. We'll see you next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And this is Leave No Man Behind. <laughs>